It doesn't work like that. You can't change anything. Your maniac Iraqi buddy shot Linus. That is what always happened. It's just, we never experienced how it all turns out. But the good news is that Linus didn't die. So that means the kid can't either. He'll be fine. Didn't look like he was gonna be fine. What if you're wrong? Well, if I'm wrong, then I guess we all stop existing and none of it matters anyway then, does it? Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 511, Whatever Happened Happened. This is the 97th episode of the series, and there are 24 to go. With that, let's jump straight into the Wikipedia summary for the episode which starts with flash forwards, in which Kate develops a friendship with Sawyer's ex-girlfriend Cassidy and Sawyer's daughter Clementine. Kate tells Cassidy the truth about what happened on the island, including that baby Aaron is not her son. Cassidy eventually leads Kate to realize that the reason she took Aaron as her own is because Kate needed him in order to get over her emotional attachment to Sawyer. After this realization, Kate decides to return to the island with the others who left. She leaves Aaron in the care of Carol Littleton, Aaron's biological grandmother. Kate also tells Carol that she is returning to the island to find Claire and bring her home. In 1977, following the events of the previous episode, He's Our You, Jin wakes up and notices that Ben Linus has been shot by Saeed. He brings Ben to the barracks so that his injuries can be treated by Juliet. Juliet is unable to perform the necessary surgery on Ben and sends Sawyer to retrieve Jack. Jack, knowing what uh, Ben does in the future, refuses to help. This drives Kate to do anything she can to help. Meanwhile, Hurley and Miles debate the nature of time travel, a particular point being how older Ben, after meeting Saeed in 2004, did not seem to remember him. Kate goes to the sickbay where Ben is being treated and donates her blood because she is a universal donor. She strikes up a conversation with Ben's father, Roger, who is upset that Ben stole his keys and freed Saeed from jail. Once it becomes clear that Ben will succumb to his injuries without further intervention, Kate decides to take Ben to the others. Sawyer comes to Kate's aid, and they bring Ben to Richard Alpert, who warns them that if he treats Ben, he will not remember what has happened and will never be the same again. They agree anyway. Richard carries Ben to the temple, with Richard remarking that he works for neither Charles nor Ellie. Lastly, in 2007, Ben awakens from being knocked unconscious in Namaste and is greeted, apparently, by John Locke. With that, we'll now get into my thoughts about the episode. Certainly a, well, you know, it's an interesting episode. It was, it was fun to watch. No complaints from it. Didn't feel like it was particularly dragging. However, I felt like I raced through watching it. Um, there are times where there's just clip after clip that cries out to be recorded. Uh, I didn't feel especially compelled that that was the case this time. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I mean, week after week, I feel like I kind of have the same amount of notes. Um, perhaps this one just flew. It obviously isn't very heavy on uh, overarching mythology stuff for the most part. Yeah, we have the others. Yes, we have the reference to Ellie and to, to Charles. Yes, we have the temple, but that's mostly at the end. 
Uh, it has this self-contained mystery of why doesn't Ben remember, which that, of course, answers by the end of the episode. But anyhow, let's jump right in. Uh, let's start with the recap portion, uh, in which uh, there's a, this recap of Sawyer's Clementine, Kate's Aaron, and Claire's mom, along with the Ben business of the last few weeks. And all in all, it's an especially engrossing review that ends with Ben's shooting. Um, I don't know what made that previously unlost uh, better than most, but it, I don't know, to me it just struck a bit of a chord. The episode proper picks up shortly after Ben's shooting, with Jin wisely reporting that, quote, the hostile, close quote, has attacked him. I like the quiet, genuine air to it all, this sense of humanity, especially from the all-too-reliable Jin. It boils down to the fact that a kid has been shot and Jin is there to help. Uh, Jin is not concerned about time travel. He's just doing the thing which is immediately the right thing. With that, the story moves to Horus rallying the troops and immediately figuring out that a hostile Sawyer was let out by an inside job. I kind of found this to be a gutsy move of the narrative to be able to figure it out so quickly. Yes, season five, uh, and to a certain degree season four, but yes, season five has a pace to it that um, is remarkable. Now, look, obviously seasons four, five, and six have a different pace than the first three because there's less episodes to the season arc. I think with season four, it's a bit less obvious because... Of all the strike stuff that we've we've covered uh, in great detail last season, um, I think season six, yes, it has the same episodes as season five, but it's a bit uh, it's the final approach. it's it's a bit slowing down. There's kind of this this curiousness to the flash sideways, which we'll discuss next season. Um, and, and when I say curious, it's kind of this um, it's this new thing to us. Uh, certainly, you know, there's there's the mystery uh, of what they are, which, again, we'll, we'll get to in due course. Um, but this is a season that's lean, that's muscular, that keeps moving. And I think that certainly is summed up by the fact that Horace figures out so quickly that this must be an inside job. There's not, um, oh, I don't know. There's not kind of that, you know, but he wasn't in the, he, he isn't on the manifest. There's not that kind of delay of it. It's just, boom, Horace figures it out, which I think is completely in line with the character, I might add. Anyhow, speaking of gutsy moves, our uh, damaged hero, Kate, at this point meets the damaged uh, dad in the form of Roger Linus as they share stories of how Dharma kicks the good ones to the bottom of the pile. And though there's a truly great moment as Roger Linus introduces himself, uh, you know, only that moment being that Kate realizes what's what, there still is this, there's this underlying anger to, to, to Roger that comes across even when, um, I'm not saying when the actor doesn't intend to, because you know, the actor is certainly quite capable, but the character, I think, there's just this, you know, he's just angry around the edges, and it's, it's really a wonderful portrayal uh, of the character. Anyhow, at this point, the, the show wants to make sure that the narrative thrust of the episode continues strong, and that is with Jin arriving with the unconscious Ben right on cue, right as Roger is pondering the particulars of his life, his life on the island, and so forth. With that, I think that we are unsurprised to see that, uh, that Roger starts to panic, 
that Roger has a, a genuine paternal reaction. Certainly, the the sins of Roger are well known from from previous episodes. Our dislike for Roger is well set. Uh, this episode, of course, will take some of that away to say, um, I mean, you can't take away the, the the previous stuff with boy Ben and, and the cruelty from uh, from Roger, or even you know things that we've seen in in the last couple episodes. But you know, this is the episode where at the end of it, at the conclusion, the implication is you know now Ben is really going to go bad. Now Ben is going to be, you know, his soul will turn black at the end of this episode. Um, so it's just interesting how they make us uh, they make us um, hate Roger less. I won't say like him more, but hate Roger less. Anyhow, at this point, Kate flashes back again. It's her flashback, but then chronologically, it's a flash uh, forward from '77 to 2007. Is it? <laughs> uh, yes, it would be 2007. Anyhow, chronologically for Kate, she flashes back to. Uh, hanging out with wee baby Aaron. There's excellent acting out of the little guy, if, of course, smiling at the nice lady is really acting at that age. At any rate, the show has coaxed the most perfect take out of the baby, and it's just a smile on his face. It warms the heart to him. It warms the heart to Kate. It's just this wonderful kind of reflection on Kate as a mother. And it being a Kate episode... The show, of course, gives us no time to go back to deeply hating her. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Never let it fade away. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Save it for a rainy day. Knowing... Claire's history, Aaron's history, our history with that song. It is something being done by Kate that I would I would almost call sacrilege. It's, you know, there she is blithely singing that song, Claire's song, to the stolen baby. And I think that it is immediately effective. Our stomachs turn. We're prepared to condemn Kate so greatly. It's this instant reminder that despite the series of events that one after another seemed to make sense, including this baby needs a mother. It's just this reminder that Kate stole the baby. Kate left the island. Kate has no plan to return. And it's just this it is tremendous condemnation uh, against the character. Again, I don't know how it is the show continues to make us care for her, then care for her some more, then go back to hating her. But, but indeed they do. At any rate, Kate uh, has arrived at Cassidy's home where the apparent attempt at a zinger is that Kate is there because Sawyer sent her, you know, on account of that whispering thing he said in the chopper. It's a rather yawn-worthy teaser act end. With that, we get the title card, then Cassidy counting the Sawyer loot with which he'd like Cassidy to be kept comfortable. In other news, Kate easily relays the chopper jump news without caring that she spilled the lie. Cassidy responds to hearing this vast contradiction to the massive story of the year by not particularly reacting. Now, later dialogue indicates that before the scene started, Kate told her about said lie. The 
the, the ultimate impact is that the entire thing comes off as a clunky scene in which they're trying to wrap uh, the writing uh, around the central problem, the central problem of, of why in the world Kate is talking to Cassidy, despite the fact that she's just there to drop off some money. It's just this, it, this Cassidy stuff does not ring true. Yes, Sawyer had this relationship with her. Yes, Sawyer had a kid with her. Yes, Kate crossed paths with her back when that sort of thing was cute. Uh, but now it just feels... It just feels like they're, they're, they're reaching too far back to a series... You know, frankly, to a character that we don't particularly um, have a ton of feeling for. I mean, the first cast of the episode is fine, it's great, but it ultimately is a Sawyer episode. You know, the fact that, you know, she's girl, you know, con girl and he's con boy. All right. It's that he doesn't leave with her at the end. Uh, It's, you know, it makes us hate him. It makes us understand him as a character. She's just the tool to make that happen. Um, Oh, well. Oh, well, they can't all be perfect, I suppose. But it's just, it's, it's an odd pairing that they have, certainly. Luckily, the show doesn't uh, stay with it for too long. We move back to Kate trying to get info from Sawyer about Ben's shooting, which is interrupted by Horace wanting to inspect the cell. Now, slightly, ever so slightly, unbelievably, is that Sawyer didn't check the cell first, if only to just better spin the story and spin the con. Sawyer didn't step from the screen to the jail cell area just to see what's going on. Why? Well, I don't know what Sawyer's excuse is. I know what the story excuse is. There's uh, a set of janitor keys in the lock. Uh, They know that by looking at them. And this is because you apparently give janitors the keys to the jail. And not just the door into the jail area, the actual you know, cell door keys the janitors have? Is that normal? No, not even in hippy-dippy dharma. Um, the drunk guy who beats his son, you give him a set of the jail keys along with your elite sheriff staff? It's a story weakness. And I'm not saying I can think of a way around it. I'm also not receiving credit for writing this episode. So, you know, I don't, you know nor do I have to come up with a better solution. But... It's just, it's a tad strange. It's a tad convenient. I frankly would have rather they left the keys out, or left the, the, not the keys out, but left the reference to it being the janitor's keys. Or, you know, or some reference to, you know, this is why I've been telling you that everybody shouldn't have keys to everywhere, you know, with all this hippy-dippy stuff. Some sort of Sawyer line to, to excuse it. But the fact that the janitor has access to the jail cell is strikes me as a bit weird is of course an opportunity to set the trail onto roger linus jack the janitor or random third guy who doesn't factor into things anyhow sawyer confirms from roger that the latter is missing his keys and then uh, checks in with motorpool juliet who gee whiz is performing surgery on ben with great difficulty uh I mean, the gee whiz is not that it's great difficulty. She clearly is an apt surgeon, but she's also uh, an obstetrician and not necessarily inclined to deal with uh, with bullet wounds uh, <laughs> to any great degree. 
Now, where's the real doctor that Dharma has, uh, who we would imagine has some sort of ER background? Well, he's at the looking glass. What a coincidence. It's another little creaky, wobbly point to this story. And now it's around this time that the writing credit shows up. This is a Lindelof and Cuse episode. I personally found this surprising because there are so many crumbs on the script so early. It's not a broken script. It's not uncompelling. It's just there's some messiness to it that I don't know why it's there, particularly from these two. Anyhow, with that, we go back to one of the houses where Kate, Jack, and Hurley are being kept under house arrest by Miles. Hurley wonders if they'll fade away a la Back to the Future. Nice little callback there, Hurley. Uh, and there's a quick recap of the whatever happened, happened theory. It's already happened, so they, you know, but, but they haven't experienced it yet. The act zinger approaches as Sawyer enters. He needs Jack's surgical knowledge, but no, Jack is okay with Ben dying. With that, we have an act break, and the circular logic just continues to go round and round. Jack doesn't need to save him because Ben survived, but perhaps he's the one to save him because he did survive, but Jack says he's already saved him in season two. Now, there's an interesting tidbit here amidst all the kind of angsty, you know, save him, don't save him business. Jack wonders if the island is trying to heal itself and Jack is just getting in the way. Does the island want Ben dead? And Jack just keeps thwarting the island's wishes. This is an incredibly humble view that Jack is proposing. It, Jack is seeing himself finally as part of the universe, not master of it, a la season one. Uh, he's willing to react to the world, the universe, the island, the forces around him, not, not act to, to take them over. With that, Kate goes to give uh, blood to Ben, and uh, that gives her chit-chat time with Juliet. We're in Kate, uh, Kate dishes the dirt about her sordid past with Jack, and then she lets Roger Linus sit in. I think that at this point we are frustrated. Why does Kate always let the bad ones in? It's just terribly frustrating. It's also kind of a pointless scene, kind of a time filler. Like, she, you know, she's sharing with Juliet stuff that we know. Does Juliet need to know it? Eh, can't it be accomplished off screen? I mean, this is a lost problem where... At what point do they let us know that others know things? Others in the small o sense. Anyhow, as despicable as Roger is, there's again fantastic acting out of him. He rationalizes that Sawyer knows Ben took the keys from him, Roger. And here his face is a mask of grief and disappointment and regret. This is especially considering that we tend to hate Roger always, and we're generally supportive of Roger Workman being gassed and being the subject of head volleyball in the van. Still, nonetheless, we, it's a it's sympathetic portrayal of him here, and it's wonderful that he can be portrayed so sympathetically. Uh, it's wonderful that the show can go there, the actor can go there, and indeed... The, the writing in this episode flawed as it might be elsewhere. Anyhow, uh, with that, we head back to Miles and Hurley as apparently Lindelof and Cuse feel we really, really, really need the particulars of, of 
the timeline spelled out. If all this already happened to me, then why don't I remember any of it? Because once Ben turned that wheel, time isn't a straight line for us anymore. Our experiences in the past and the future occurred before these experiences right now. Shoot me, please, please. Aha, I can't shoot you because if you die in 1977, then you'll never come back to the island on the freighter 30 years from now. I can die because I've already come to the island on the freighter. Any of us can die because this is our present. But you said Ben couldn't die because he still has to grow up and become the leader of the others. Because this is his past. But when we first captured Ben and Saeed, like, tortured him, then why wouldn't he remember getting shot by that same guy when he was a kid? There's a whole lot of cuteness that leads up to that moment. It builds, builds, builds to the flaw in the logic, or rather huh. the question that must be answered with Ben's revival by the others something that we're going to see kicked off at the end of this episode. With that, the story moves back to the infirmary where Juliet gives Roger uh, a good report. And at that point, Roger is sent off to get more supplies. Quick, you know, <laughs> character enters, then character exits. At this point, the story returns momentarily to Kate's circular logic. Ben can't die, but he is dying. And it leads to a genuinely good act end. Juliet slowly supposing that maybe they can help. Who? The others. You know, in season two, it would have taken five episodes to reach that conclusion. Now, after the act break, Juliet and Kate are loading the boy up into the van. There's an interesting moment where Juliet says that she must tell Sawyer when he returns. I think that that's worth a pause. I kind of read that moment as equal woman Juliet conceding that some turf does indeed belong to Sawyer. Um, again, I kind of saw a gender comment in there, not some huge thing. Just I was a bit surprised that that the fiercely independent and fiercely capable Juliet, uh, you know, was conceding, as I said, kind of kind of giving realizing that, that that some of this is Sawyer area and she has to defer to him. And I'm not necessarily being critical. I'm not saying she's less of a woman. I think, if nothing else, it's a comment on their relationship and the need for the need for honesty, particularly in this greatly dishonest life that they are living. Um, you know, outside that house of theirs is a complete and utter lie. So they, of course, need to be on the same page as much as possible. With that, we flash back to Ben's dockside meeting as everything melts down since no one wants to return. And of course, Ben doesn't want to be shot by Sun. It continues now from Kate's point of view. And side note, yes, it's clear that the show continues to return to that and shows it as this crisscross moment. I feel like I've seen it done better where you keep going back and going, oh, wow, this really is a crisscross moment. Um, it kind of comes off as a bit cuter here. Now, maybe some of that is just the length of the narrative. Uh, a movie like uh, like Go, where you'll see a number of kind of key events seen from different um, different moments. Um, that's able to make it feel a bit uh, knit tighter when you have two hours to play with. And this is now a, a, a meeting that was several episodes ago. So you know. 
quite a quite a number of episodes ago. So again, not a huge moment of criticism. I just feel like this scene, while familiar, doesn't quite sing the way I think that they had intended. Uh, anyhow, uh, as I said, we're continuing with Kate's point of view. She is off to the grocery store to get Aaron milk. Milk, which becomes juice because he changes his mind. Uh, Mom of the Year makes, to be fair, a, a vaguely forgivable mistake. She lets go of him and he disappears. I mean, it's not like I'd make that mistake, of course, but I'm also not an awful person like Kate. Besides, TV rules say that we can hate her for this. This is a understandable human mistake, but in TV, this is shorthand for, wow, she can't take a call and click ignore and hold her kid's hand at the same time in a crazy world uh, where <laughs> where people may be out to get you, let alone there's just bad people out there in the world. So definitely shorthand to go, oh, there goes Kate screwing up again. And it's ultimately an odd scene. It just shows that she's a fallible, perhaps imperfect mom. Big whoop, welcome to the real world. Anyhow, back on the island, Kate approaches the sonic fence, uh, talks with, uh, you know, talks a bit with, you know, coughing, dying Ben, and then she sees Sawyer's van approach. Uh, we end the act uh, with the odd zinger of Sawyer being willing to help. After the break, the oddness continues. Kate having girl time with Cassidy, as she is now dishing the dirt over Jack, wanting everyone to go back. As Kate recounts the tale of losing Aaron temporarily, it starts to feel very much that Cassidy returns to this episode merely to be a sounding board for Kate, that the story excuse is that of just giving someone for Kate to talk to. Kate also makes the, uh, pardon me, Cassidy also makes the very weird claim that Kate stole Aaron to fill the hole left in her heart by Sawyer. Her logic makes a sort of sense, but I think in our hearts just doesn't really fit. I mean, yes, Kate is this wishy-washy back and forth, Jack Sawyer, Jack Sawyer. But I think Kate started to look after Aaron because it was the right thing to do. And Kate kept Aaron because it seemed to be the right thing to do. Because... Perhaps it's a comment on just that maternal urge, but who's going to do it? Jack, who's so tempestuous, uh, who, of course, would go on. You know, Kate might not have known at the time, but, you know, Jack, who ha was capable of becoming a prescription drug addict, as he was. Good time, Hurley? No. Saeed? Uh, he's killed people. Son? Well, she's about to have a baby of her own. How about she concentrate on that one? Uh, you know, Desmond? Penny? I mean, it's all kind of... Kate is the logical fit. The fact that, surprise, surprise, she only plans one step ahead and not five steps ahead. Well, that's Kate, but I don't think she did it because she was sad that Sawyer jumped out of the helicopter. She did it because she was holding the baby, and who else was going to take it? Anyhow, <laughs> let's head back to the sonic fence where Sawyer admits that he's there to help because no matter what, it's wrong to let a kid die. And there's kind of, as he realizes this, there's a bit of that uh, reprise of the Sawyer music that's a little uh, has that slight Western flair. It's Sheriff Sawyer at the edge of civilization saying there still are rules, there are unbreakable rules. Um, and then, of course, there's also that lovely addition that it was Juliet who told him 
that notion that it's wrong to let a kid die, and he is doing it for her. And speaking of Juliet, elsewhere, back at the village, Dr. Juliet is ready to tear the head off of Dr. Jack. I needed you. I'm sorry? That kid was bleeding out. You're a surgeon, and I needed you. That kid is Ben. It's not Ben yet. He's just a kid. Juliet, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Not asking for your help. Jack, you made it pretty clear you weren't interested. It's up to Sawyer and Kate now. What? She's trying to save him. And I sent James after her to help because they actually care. I came back here because I care, Juliet. I came back here because I was trying to save you. We didn't need saving. We've been fine for three years. You came back here for you. Please do me the courtesy of telling me why. I came back because I was supposed to. Supposed to do what? I don't know yet. You better figure it out. Now this is effective use of drama to act as a sounding board. Jack is restating his central mission, a vague calling by some sort of higher calling, the island god, whatever it might be, the island forces, but it's a calling of faith nonetheless. Really, really a nice uh, scene. Story moves to Sawyer and Kate walking with Ben. Cue the discussion over Cassidy, which uh, lets Sawyer look incredulous and Kate sound preachy as she wonders, what if, with her and Sawyer? It feels tremendously shoehorned. Absolutely shoehorned. It's Let's mushmash the flashback-forward story to the island story. It does not work. Luckily, it doesn't last too long, though. Uh, the others show up. And Sawyer declares that they're there to help solve a mutual problem and that to take them to see Richard Alpert pronto. Act break, then flashback Kate shows up at Mama Littleton's abode to spill the beans right after Claire's mom does a random recap of how Dr. Shepard showed up only last night and talked about someone named Aaron. Now, it's clearly an urn scene. There is, to be fair, a vague question as to where Aaron uh, is presently, which is to say in the 1977 storyline that Kate and company are experiencing, where is he? However, I think for some reason it, it was not, is not, you know, will be not. Um, uh, I don't think that it was ever a particularly burning question for first-time viewers. I know it certainly wasn't for me. I wasn't sitting there on the edge of my seat saying, but what did Kate do with Aaron? I think kind of the supposition was, well, she she left him in good hands. Um, who that would be, I don't know. I mean, Aaron also, Aaron's a character, but Aaron is also a prop in many sense, you know, in many ways. He's a prop in the tummy. He's a prop out of the tummy. He's an excuse for other people to do things. Uh, he's not really a character who has his own, you know, his own shape to him. Um but it's earned nonetheless. What did happen to Aaron? That's a good enough question. He has been with the show since day one. Uh, so, fair enough. 
and in this scene, Kate turns kind and likable, and interestingly enough, also states her new central mission. Where are you going? I'm going back to find your daughter. Here, Giacchino starts to pull out all the stops. And for all of Kate's flaws, this is the mother of three years saying goodbye. Perhaps a final goodbye for all she knows. And it's a goodbye to her son. It's a heartbreaking scene that's aptly, wonderfully acted by Evangeline Lilly. And perhaps it even helps justify the supermarket scene. Uh, someone helped Aaron when he was in trouble, just as Kate is going to help the, the, the child, Ben. It's just really, just a, a, an effective, well-earned, lovely scene. With that, the story makes its way back to the island, with our heroes surrounded by the others. Or, as Sawyer says, right where he wants them. Richard arrives, and among other tidbits, uh, he never quite learns Kate's name, nor uh, does he know Sawyer as anyone other than James LaFleur. Let's remind ourselves. However, this scene is about more than that. It's, it's a critically important scene, because it's one where the future becomes set uh, in a dark, grim inescapable sort of way and this this setting of the future is led by the slow and gloomy music if i take him he's not ever going to be the same again what do you mean by that what i mean is that he'll forget this ever happened and that his innocence will be gone He will always be one of us. You still want me to take him? Yes. Richard. You shouldn't do this without asking Ellie. If Charles finds out. Let him find out. I don't answer to either of them. Where are you taking him? Among other things from that compelling scene uh, is this sense of the walls uh, are absolutely closing in, that our show's great villain is about to be made, not by a drunken father, but by our hero's actions. It's just, it's just this, I mean, it's frankly a depressing notion that, that we caused this. You know, our heroes, the people that we root for, uh, have, have, have caused this. Um, added to it is that wonderful little tidbit that Richard doesn't answer to bosses like Richard and Ellie. Um, it's, a, it, it's a tremendously nice uh, moment there. Uh, one that I think was worthy of a little reinforcement. I think that it probably was a bit vague first-time viewers who exactly Richard was in the hierarchy of things he appears to be the number two man uh, to Ben in, in some of the previous episodes now he appears to be the boss man 
or boss man to you know it, it, it's somewhat vague and that little reminder of he's not you know he, he he's the on earth guy for for jacob um it's a well-earned little reminder now at this point um with uh which with richard entering the temple it's it's a curious wonderful and unpredictable end to things we as richard enters the temple we could expect many scenes to follow uh, but instead, it's adult Ben after the Ajira crash, waking up to the ominous and apparently quite undead Locke. Hello, Ben. Welcome back to the land of the living. Is it a resolution of today's story? Eh, perhaps not. But the show, of course, has long since uh, become extremely serial in nature. And I really don't think that anyone minds. Uh, particularly, you know, the, the show was so well set in its production of continuous episodes at this point that the next episode is only next week. The fact that young Ben's fate is up in the air, the fact that <laughs> grown-up Ben's fate is now curiously up in the air it's it's not quite a solid conclusion to things but but again it's not a complaint on my end and indeed it just leaves us supremely eager for next week's episode and feeling uh very satisfied from this episode with that let's take a look at lostpedia for some bits and pieces that i have missed uh lostpedia notes that this is kate's last flashback episode and the final traditional flashback episode centered around an 815 survivor. Also, the episode was first broadcast on April 1st, 2009, i.e. March 32nd, and it shares the central theme of the story, March Has 32 Days, from Mystery Tales number 40, the comic book that was one of Richard's items presented to John Locke as a test in Cabin Fever. In the 1956 story, a time traveler tries to alter history when he relives a day in his own past, after struggling with the question of whether it would be possible to do anything differently if he had the opportunity to go back in time, just as Hurley and Miles struggled over the question. Last but not least, this episode has a grammatically incorrect superfluous comma. Whatever happened, comma happened. Now, I would agree that it is grammatically, uh, grammatically incorrect. However, I think that I think that you can make the argument that. It, as it's supposed to be read, um, you know, it's supposed to be read, whatever happened, happened. It's supposed to be read with that slight pause. Um, I'm not complaining too terribly much. Anyhow, let's look ahead to next week's episode, 512, the, <laughs> the, the succinctly named Dead is Dead, uh, which... <laughs> The show puts it out there. It puts it out there so many times that Locke is dead. Life and death of Jeremy Bentham. Now we're going to have more with the newly returned Locke, who in an episode, dead is dead. Um, the show has it there. It's there. It's there. And we just, uh, we dared, we dared doubt it for, for a while. So with that, 
I'll just remind everybody, as I think I did not last week, but I'll remind everybody you can share feedback by uh, saying hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost, by leaving a message on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com, by sending me an email to lookingbackatlost uh, at gmail.com, or last but not least, leaving a message on the Google voicemail line 732 707 1815. So, with that, Thank you, everyone, for listening, as always. And I will talk to you again next week for 512, Dead is Dead. Take care, everybody, and bye-bye.